Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. It's Hugh Hewitt with the Hillsdale Dialogue. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu. We are deep into our project on the writings of Winston Churchill. And I was corrected this week, Dr. Arn, by our great and good friends in common, George Kimball, who wrote to me and said, you keep misstating something, Hugh. You keep saying Winston Churchill won the Nobel Prize for Literature for the History of the English-Speaking People. He won the Nobel Prize of Literature for his body of work. And I said, oh my gosh, I'm wrong. I'm often wrong, uh, never in doubt, frequently wrong, never in doubt. Is, Do- is George Kimball right, Dr. Arn? Well, he, he won it uh, four years before the History of the English-Speaking People was published. <laughs> so I'd say you're probably wrong. <laughs> I'm probably wrong. <laughs> I hate being wrong, but I always admit to it. Frequently, never in doubt, frequently wrong, that is my theory. Why do you think so many people like this? We're on book 10 of the history of the English-speaking people, uh, and it begins with the victory piece and Canning and the Duke, and we're going to talk about the Duke of Wellington, which I'm waiting for. Why do so many people like this? I'm tempted to make it longer, but we can't. we got too much to do. Well, uh, a lot of reasons. Churchill was uh, a very good writer, and so his works are engaging. And then uh, uh, what I think is the best thing about this is, well, it tells the story. Uh, the best thing about it is he brings deep political insight into the causes of things. Why do people act? Why do statesmen in particular act the way they act? And how do you judge and evaluate them? Uh, Churchill is very charitable in evaluating other statesmen, leaving out of account Lenin and Stalin and Hitler. Um, and and so that way you 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 see how somebody who's been involved in the great affairs of the world and his nation evaluates what's going on here. And Can I give an example from yeah. Book Ten? Book Ten is is about uh, the war, the years after Napoleon, right up until the Victorian age. And Book Ten has on page eleven this quote. It was the misfortune for Britain in these years that the parliamentary opposition was at its weakest. As Hazlitt put it, the two parties were like competing stagecoaches which splashed each other with mud, but went by the same road to the same place. Now, I, when I read that, I said to myself, that is applicable in all times and all places to all parliamentary uh, systems. And it's a brilliant insight. You do not want a weak opposition Headed in the, and that's, by the way, what I think the Tories have become in Great Britain right now. Even though they're in the majority, they've just become sort of labor light. And, and I think that is the kind of insight that Churchill gives us again and again and again. And it's applicable to today. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the politicians are victims of polling now because it's understood to be more scientific than it is. Uh, and we think if we just ask them what they want and give them give that back to them they they will what they will love us and and the truth is that won't work because first of all there's a reason why you're elected a representative so you can focus on it and you can adjust to facts and all that and 
people don't, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm much more serious about the Hugh Hewitt show when I'm on it than when I'm not. Yep. Because it's not my responsibility, right? Yep. And I figure you'll screw it up on your own. <laughs> uh, so, that, in other words, we, they, they, they are slaves to information that is not real. real. And that's, you know, and, and so the, the great politicians, the ones that we think have real substance, they're the ones who have an argument to make. And they keep making it, and they adapt it. When they're wrong, they admit it, right? But it's their argument, and they stand or fall by it. And that's what representatives are supposed to do. And then we get to pick later, judging results, deciding about the future. So Why does he want a strong opposition, though? Why is that so important in a parliamentary system? you have system? to have an argument. Yep. Right? It's, uh, uh, I, I think I've said this already, but I'll say it again. Uh, Churchill imagines... The same way, by the way, James Madison manages, uh, imagines the government of the United States. <laughs> Churchill imagines specific, specifically the House of Commons as the locus of a great national and continuing debate. And uh, he, he thought it was so important that they printed almost the entire debate every day in the major British newspapers. And people read them. He writes, what a great day it was when they rated their politicians the way they rate sports figures. You see, people are paying attention, and they're talking it through themselves, and they're forming a view. And that affects the debate in the House of Commons and the next election. And, and so it's a constant thing, right? But it falls into bad periods. In, in book 10, he begins by saying, the government were by their background and upbringing largely unaware of the causes of ills which they had to cure. And he talks about Peterloo and the... Ma I mean, after the exhaustion that the Napoleonic Wars brought upon Britain led to a long period of political paralysis where very few great men emerged, although the Duke of Wellington is hanging around in Peel. We'll talk about Peel later. Do you think we're in one of those periods of exhaustion right now in the United States, Dr. Arndt? Uh, well, I, uh, yeah, or potential collapse, I think. We're not up to the level of events these days. Uh, what's really going on is uh, eroding power of ordinary people over the political system, relative decline of the authority of the United States, uncertainty how to prosecute all that. And, and so... We're not in a good period of American politics. You know, I, I am hopeful about one thing. I'm very hopeful that the arrival of Kevin McCarthy as the Speaker will bring into the House of Representatives a guy with a gavel who comes from the great Central Valley of California where it is never easy. It is never easy. And he comes out of a hard scrabble background. The guy opened to Delhi. You know Leader McCarthy, soon to be Speaker McCarthy. Well, do you think he'll bring the caucus back into touch with real people and real issues? I hope so. And, and, you know, his, uh, I figured out a long time ago about him. I like him. Uh, he really likes to win elections. Yes. <laughs> and that's a novel thing for a politician. <laughs> it, uh, it actually is, sort of, you know. They, uh, uh, the Republican Party has been divided before Donald Trump and is, has been divided by Donald Trump. 
And so the powers that be in Washington partly rejected him and wouldn't campaign with him. And so they never got entirely behind him, whether they should or not. But McCarthy, and, you know, he didn't get entirely behind Trump either. But, he, you know, I, I kept saying to people in, in Washington, I kept saying, have you seen the audiences he draws? <laughs> yep. Isn't that relevant somehow yep. to this? You know, well, keeping the, keeping the grand old party together is a difficult thing. And yeah. it, it requires, you remember Rex, Richard Reed and the Fantastic Four, the stretch guy. you got to stretch hard to cover the entire Republican Party. It's just tough to do. But when you're not in touch with your base, and that's what Churchill was writing about here, is an opposition that just, they're the same people talking about the same things to each other. And I think maybe Washington, D.C. exacerbates that. I thought I was reading about today when I read the beginning of uh, Book 10, especially when he says about the monarchy, popular feeling against the conditions of England was now diverted into a national inquiry into the condition of the monarchy. Because George III was mad and his sons were profligate. Uh, and, and the whole thing just kind of went into a dismal. They, won, they beat Napoleon and they promptly, it's like us beating the Soviet Union and promptly losing our way, Dr. Arndt. Yeah. If if uh, you know we we're entering in this volume of the of the English speaking peoples, we're entering the uh, what we're interested entering the crisis that led to the decline of Great Britain. Yes, which Churchill predicted, presided over, and kept up the fight amidst and after. And you know it's a great testament to his character that he did that, uh, and and so ter- these these terrible things are unfolding. But of course, one thing the, the first reason for the eclipse of the British Empire as the strongest thing in the world is the United States of America. Yep. And Churchill did not. Well, he regretted that here and there, of course. He's Churchill would have been with Pitt the older, right? He would have been a friend of America. He oh, would have yeah. said, "Stop yeah. that stuff." And he was, and he didn't. He he. Uh, there's a wonderful passage in the World Crisis, where he is talking about the advent or the accession to the Allies of the United States in the First World War. And I'll finish that story when, the, when we come back. I love having a guest who understands that the music comes up and you've got to wrap up the sentence. That is not always the case with Dr. Arn, but today he's listening. We like that. The Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at hillsdale.edu. The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English, Justin Jackson, picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in the Exodus story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E. Hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. 
I don't know how we're going to do Catholic emancipation, the repeal of the corn laws, and the supposedly the Tory party in five minutes, but we're going to try. What were you saying about Churchill's appreciation of America, Dr. Arn? Uh, he, he's, uh, when the United, States, the United States saved the world in the First World War and the Second World War, and it, it's, uh, when Russia was, de- was defeated and became a Bolshevik and the, and the Germans transferred the Eastern armies to the West, what made up the gap was the American army. And Churchill says that, uh, foolish people, he writes in round, in, in paraphrase, they argued that the United States didn't have the experience of war and they wouldn't fight. But I had read of Gettysburg. It's in this volume where he writes about that. And he said, I knew that America was a great pot, slow to boil, but irresistible force when it did. And see, he's, he was good at adding up the assets and liabilities of the world and figure out how they met in the great world wars. He was in two of do, do you think he would have been with Robert Peel for the repeal of the Corn Laws or with Disraeli against them? Oh, yeah. His, his father, uh, at the tail end of that great movement, his father was a leading figure in favor of all that. And, a free trade. A yeah, free trade. Yeah. And, and we'll have to talk about that because that issue works in a different way in Britain than it does here. Uh, but, yeah, that's a, he was a, you know... Everybody gets involved. Everybody gets a chance. And you can't, the way, the way the corn laws, you want to talk about that now? Yeah, let's start and we'll carry it on. So the corn It's complicated. Laws, corn means grain, cereal grains. That's the British, that's what, that's, they talk funny. And uh, uh, so the corn laws are taxes on the imports of cereal grains. It's the, you know, the basic food staple. And it just so happened that British society, wealth was in the land, the farmers were the rich ones, and the farmers were the lords. And so if you have taxes on imports of food, it's a transfer of wealth from people who eat food, which is everybody, to people who produce food, which is... Which are the farmers and the lords. Yeah, the aristocracy, right? And so that was a, that became an, and the reason what made it possible was that the vote was skewed uh, toward the landed, right? There were rotten boroughs and there were, uh, and the, you know, the authority of the House of Lords. And, and, uh, and so there wasn't popular control of the legislature. And and that and that that comes to sight. That becomes a hot issue because there's a recession and a food crisis and food costs a fortune and people are sick of it. And uh, and uh, Churchill, uh, well, uh, it, it starts. You know, it's odd how it worked. Uh, the Tories were right alongside the Liberals in repealing the Corn Laws. And once they were repealed, which was about 1850 by the time it was done, that meant that it had become a more popular society. And what followed inevitably and quickly, and, and sometimes coincident with this, was uh, uh, they loosely liberalized the election laws. More people got yeah. to vote. 
The, the reform bill of 1832 and the repeal of the Corn Laws, which happens in 1845, wreck this entire British system. They don't even know it. And when we come back from break, I want to talk about this because Disraeli, this mastermind, is sitting on the sidelines, not wondering about the Corn Laws, not wondering about reform, but wondering about how to advance his political career and the career of the party he wants. And he is willing to go into exile for a long time, Larry Arn, in order to get control. Uh, that's, uh, see that, and just, just think what an amazing act that is. Because the aristocracy was lined up more with the conservative party. Yes. And they're the ones who are going to get gouged by this. And, and so that was an amazing thing. And Disraeli, by the way, who is, uh, on the surface, a very cynical sort of person, right? Elusive, ironic. And he just did this great heartfelt thing alongside Gladstone. And Gladstone and Israeli fought for 30 years and they hated each other. We're going to talk about them because that is the greatest political rivalry ever. Andrew Roberts was going to write a book about the Israeli and they put it aside and it made me sad. I hope he gets back to it. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn. Don't go anywhere, America. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn just mentioned Rotten Burrows. R-O-T-T-E-N Burrows. B-O-R-O-U-G-H-S. And I, I think we need to pause and explain what they had to reform, Dr. Arn, in Great Britain that made Great Britain great, which was getting rid of Rotten Burrows. But there was an argument for Rotten Burrows. And boy, did they fight over it. Would you, do you want to explain this? Well, they were. So a borough is an electoral district for this yep. purpose. And and. It so happened that uh, people move, move around faster than electoral districts move, district lines. And so there were lots of boroughs where basically nobody lived. And everybody who did live in those boroughs tended to be an employee, effectively a ward, of the local gentry, of the landlord, of the duke or the earl or the viscount. Uh, Randolph Churchill who was a Tory Democrat, he always called himself, as did his son Winston, his first seat was, um, come on, uh, not Westrom, that's where Chartwell is, it was Woodstock, the, the, the place where Blenheim Palace is. Oh. Uh, uh, and, and his first seat was that. And that meant he was effectively appoint, appointed by his father, the Duke, to be the MP for that seat. That is, that is sort of a modern uh, uh, expression or a more modern expression of the way that Pitt, I mean, that Burke got in. He got picked by someone. Now, you're a smart guy. You go to Parliament. Yeah, that's it. And, that's, and see, now, uh, Lord Randolph Churchill, uh, Churchill's father, he eventually moved up and got elected in Birmingham, you know, big urban constituency. Uh, but he started out, you know, he got his start being the son of the Duke. And, and there was a lot of that, right? And, that's, and that meant that, uh, like, there could be a great national wave of sentiment sweep the electorate, and it might not change the majority in the House of Commons uh, because of things like that. And, now, uh, and there's so they, a great line here about, quote, Churchill says, the strange habit of English electors 
of voting against the governments which gave them the franchise now made itself uh, so the party that would reform and expand the franchise will get voted out almost inevitably isn't that odd yeah and and i think disraeli knew that and eventually benefited from it but uh he you know he's and see that's a you know talk about strong opposition when disraeli and gladstone went at it with each other that was you know gladstone is a very interesting man he's uh you know a great one of the greatest parliamentarians ever uh, today, what we remember about him is too much involvement with slavery because he inherited some slaves in the West Indies and didn't let them go. But he was a uh, he was a big figure. He was eloquent. He was a man of the people. Disraeli very much not that. And uh, so, yeah, I look forward to Andrew's book about Disraeli too. That'll be a great book. Yeah, Gladstone is prime minister, for, and we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll come back to this in two weeks. Gladstone gets the prime ministership in 1868. Disraeli gets it in 1874. We're still way before that. We're with Palmerston in the Crimean War. And I have to bring up Palmerston. I've always loved reading books about him. Uh, And I wonder what your opinion of this Palmy, as he was called, who was a British first, always and everywhere kind of guy. And what do you think of Palmerston? Well, uh, he's, you know, the third great figure in British foreign policy. And and uh, this is uh, the, the you have to understand British foreign policy because he and uh, first Castlereagh and then Canning and then Palmerston they carried that off right and what was it like uh, just remember uh, Britain is a great imperial nation and it's relatively uninterested in how local communities govern themselves except where they had sovereignty where their rule was relatively light. And uh, and so this liberal foreign policy, free trade, uh, let, you know, let, let uh, uh, Palmerston set his face against a coalition of monar- monarchies in Europe that bound together to guarantee, perpetuate uh, monarchy around the world. We have to protect our kind of government. And Britain would have none of that. They didn't want anything to do with it. And so instead, let them be ruled the way they want to be ruled. Just let them be friends with us. And we'll trade with them and we'll guarantee their ships on the ocean. And that's a system that works really great for us, but really great, they argued, for the world. And that's, you know, I mean, in America, uh, we're very proud and we don't need those British to protect us, except me, who's married to one. The Monroe Doctrine was guaranteed by the British Navy. Yes, people don't know that, but it was great rhetoric by James Monroe, but it was British hulls that kept us safe from the colonial ambition of uh, non-American powers. That's right. And and see, they were, they were, and that, that suited Britain right down to the nines because they, you know, all what they want to do is trade. And and we want to we want to trade, and so we came together about that. You know, you, you just said right down to the nines. I wonder what the origin of that is. I learned that between sixes and sevens originated in the annual parade of the guilds through the city, and two guilds couldn't decide who was sixth oldest and who was seventh, so they switched every year. 
position. Yeah. That's where between six and down to the nines must have something like that, right? You don't come up with down to the nines out of nowhere. Yeah, maybe I coined it. Uh, no, no, it it's, it's a great phrase, but almost all these phrases, that's why we do this. It's all based in the history of the English-speaking people. That's why we're doing this. And I, I want to go back to Palmerston. He didn't like tyrants, and we had three of them, the Tsar, the Emperor of Austria, and the King of Prussia. But he got along with them because he had to. We now have a quartet of tyrants in the world. Putin and Khomeini in Iran and Kim Jong-il, and then the chief tyrant of them all is Xi Jinping. Yeah. And he is in the position of what the Tsar was, and eventually Palmerston went to war with the Tsar over Crimea, which, you know, it's so funny to read this in the middle of the, not funny, it's, it's moving to read this in the middle of a war in Crimea. Yeah. It's, it, it was Russian back then, and everyone thought it was Russian, and I'm not arguing that Ukraine should give up their claims. Uh, the Soviet Union gave Crimea to Ukraine when it broke up, but here we are having a war in Crimea in the 1850s. That's, uh, yeah, that, and see, the, the, I, I, uh, here's just a sense I have from reading Churchill's for so long. Churchill thought Russia was a real thing, right? And, and they didn't want, and Russia was a rival at the time of the Crimean War. That's what the war was about. And Russia is a vast place without good warm water parts. And, and the, it's interesting. There's no, like uh, England and the United States have a million ways to get to the sea. Uh, Russia and China, fewer. And that means that uh, you can bottle them up, maybe. And Russia was very bottled up. They, you know, their two main warm water ports are in, the, in Crimea, which, however, to use it to get to the world, you've got to go through two sets of straits, not one. You've got to get through the Straits of Marmara, where Istanbul is, and then you're in the Mediterranean and get out to the high seas. You've either got to go through the Suez Canal or the Straits of Gibraltar, still in British hands. And right? these are facts that do not change. That's right, and they're, they're very important, right? They matter a lot. And, you know, just if you just look at a map of, uh, of the Pacific uh, off the coast of China, you know, their, their whole thing is to deny us access to those countries off their coast. And I think it's fundamental to American strategy that we must not let them do that. And they're not so far off from doing it now. That's why Taiwan is in the news all the time. That's why the new Select Committee on China, the McCarthy, is in panel that will be chaired by not a Michigander, but a Wisconsinite, Representative Mike Gallagher is going to be new Chairman Gallagher. And I think that's a very good thing because he's very smart. He's a very yeah, and smart Mike, guy. So, Mike, if I call him that, Congressman Gallagher, whom I know well and admire very much, he and Tom Cotton have both been writing about what to do about China. And, and you know, we need to... We need to get serious about Taiwan, which is hard to do because they may attack it any time, and maybe we can't stop them. But, and see, here's a great thing. Uh, it's the reason tyrants have trouble consolidating their power. Japan is really building up their military now. And, and so is Australia, and so is Vietnam. They're afraid. They're afraid. 
And but I think people should read the Crimean War stuff again and again and again. And Churchill's, this is uh, the fourth volume of Churchill's History of the English-Speaking People, chapter, book 10, the first 130 pages. You'll learn more about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine today than anywhere else. Because we've, we've done this before, Larry Arn. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and it's not, you know, uh, I think that we're flippant and cavalier about Russia. You know, we forget that Russia is an old and a real thing, and it's not going to go away. And maybe we can take the Crimean ports away from Russia, but they've had it for the better part of 300 years. And so it's going to be a fight to do it. And then Zelensky may or may not know that. We love Zelensky. You've heard Dr. Arn say sometimes someone, history throws up uh, a wild card, and he's praised Zelensky that way. We will see. We'll be right back, America. Don't go anywhere. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. On the new episode of The Larry Arn Show, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn sits down with theology professor Jordan Wales and computer science professor John Seifert for a roundtable discussion. What are, are there dangers? What are they? Because it's useful means, yes, it can't be stopped because it's the, the companies, the next level agents doing the technological advances. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's good. A hundred years ago, we switched, switched over from artisan craftsmen making our things to assembly lines. And that was more efficient. It was more productive. But it changed how humans were in the world instead of having the furniture in your house made by the craftsman down the road and having that person have that job, we now have a different relationship and a different arrangement. The, the kinds of dangers that we want to look at with artificial intelligence are, are similar to other sorts of industrial automation type dangers. Listen to this exclusive roundtable right now, only available on The Larry Arn Show. Find it on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio and subscribe to receive new episodes delivered right to your device. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu. Welcome back to the last segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue on Book 10 of the History of the English-Speaking People. Four volumes, 12 books, and we're on Book 10. Dr. Arn, this is about the migration of the peoples. Canada, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. Churchill does it in 32 pages. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you just think, you know, uh, it's, uh, you can look at uh, old accounts of how people moved around in Europe. Uh, there's an Indo-European language, right? And what that means is there's a crescent that starts in Western Europe and weaves around and heads north and circles around and ends up in India. And the Indo-European languages are related by that movement, right? It's a huge movement. This is different. This is putting a bunch of people on boats and send them across the great ocean in a very concentrated period of time. They just up and left and went to the new world. And they didn't know what they were going to get there except land. And uh, they, they needed a place to live. And for the first time in human history, it became possible for everybody to have a place to live. That's the promise of America. That's what, that's what settled America. And also, it settled Australia and New Zealand, right? And that's Canada. Right. That's right. And, you know, 
And it's, it's cool about Australia. They sent the criminals there. <laughs> At first, they transport sentence to transportation was not a good thing. That's it. Better it's, than hanging. It's, uh, you know, that's, uh, uh, so that thing that happened there, it's, it's, it's one of the first instances where it's seen that the world is actually one place. Because you could just move yeah. a significant part of the population yes. of Europe. And think, think about what that movement did from the point of view of this place, right? Uh, what those people brought from Europe was the Bible, Shakespeare, language. The common law. Uh, arithmetic. You know, they, in other words... They brought a civilization with them. The thing they left behind was the aristocracy. Yeah, you know, I, I've got to make sure we get this in. Churchill, when he writes about, I hope I pronounce it correctly, the Maoris of New Zealand, is very sympathetic to their culture, to how they defended their culture, and how they, they absolutely tricked the English out of their land because they wrote the treaty in such a way they kept their land. Churchill is, is very sympathetic to the indigenous people. And still, the woke folk want to turn tear down his statue. Yeah, well, it's uh, uh, Churchill is a great man, and that means that he can look at things. Uh, he's not; he's never simply a partisan in his life. Uh, he he always wanted to build a party of the center, but in this particular dispute, you know, you got to admit. Uh, we were talking about it last week or two weeks ago. Uh, the Comanche. That's yes. A that's a tremendous story, right? Everybody should read Children of the Summer Moon. Uh, Wait, what is that? Children of the Summer Moon? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's about the Comanche. It's a wonderful book. Uh, and it, it, just, it just tells their story. And their story is fierce and wonderful uh, and and the point is, that's a real story. Now, if you so look at look at the settlers who came, you know, for reasons of their own over here. And as far as they knew, it was empty over here to begin with, right? And they and they come in such numbers because they have a method of civilization that supports much longer, larger numbers than the Native Americans had. It's just the economy was different, the way they organized things. And so there's going to be a lot more of them. And that means that a great tragedy was coming across the Atlantic, unbeknownst to both parties, the ones already here and the ones arriving. And so they spent about 150 years, no, more than that, they spent uh, close to 250 years trying to figure out what to do about that. And they never did figure it out very well. Right, because you can, if you want to pine for the civilization of the Comanche, I, I do, but you can't get it back. It yeah. won't work anymore. Right? It's not because any people to be a people, they have to be able to defend themselves. And how are you going to defend yourself with uh, with arrow arrow tips chipped out of stone? It is called the Empire of the Summer Moon. Oh, is that what it's called? Yeah, I went and looked it up, because now I'm going to listen to it, because you like it so much, and you're oh, not easily impressed. It's just awesome. I, I'll just tell you a little accident from it, because, you know, this is what history is like. It's full of these accidents. 
uh, there's these two sisters, Parker, from Texas, and they're captured by the Comanche. And one of them gets her face burned off and returned to the settlement, which leads, oddly enough, not oddly enough, to a genocide order by the state of Texas against the kill every one of them. We're going to come back to this next week because I don't want to, I want to hear the whole story. So we'll invade the Civil War part of Churchill next week as the history of the English-speaking people continues to unfold. Don't miss that, America. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.